You're listening to the Inside Study Abroad podcast, episode number 27. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. This episode is sponsored by International Studies Abroad. Since 1987, ISA has offered quality study abroad opportunities for undergraduate students. Their programs range from traditional summer, semester, and year programs to service learning, international internships, and custom faculty-led and short-term programs. ISA is part of the World Strides family. If you'd like to learn more about how ISA can help your students have an enriching education abroad experience, go to studiesabroad.com. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Can you believe it? Two weeks, two episodes. It's like some kind of miracle around here. I'm so glad to have you guys back tuning in to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm coming to you live from the DC metro area where it's crazy windy here. It's Monday, February 25th, and my first flight has already been canceled due to the wind. But I've been rebooked and crossing my fingers that I get out of here today. More adventures in um, global travel, as we're all used to. Thank you guys so much for all the love on last week's episode, where I got a little raw, a little real about my biggest professional weakness. So many of you wrote to me or messaged me talking about how you actually grapple with the same issue. So it's good to know I'm not alone here and that we're all sort of working our way through our perfectionist tendencies and still making things happen in our work and our lives. The reason I'm actually in DC is, I think I mentioned it in last episode, is that I was giving the keynote talk at the Lessons from Abroad conference for the DC metro area. I've done a few of these talks and it's always a, a lot of fun getting to speak at these events because especially with my the nature of my role and, and the focus of my business, I don't get to spend a lot of time with students anymore. And so getting to go to these events and give a talk, but then also interact with students after the fact and learn a little bit more about their experiences and their future plans and goals academically, professionally, it's always very inspiring. It reminds me of why I do what I do. Uh, Hopefully why we all do what we do. I want to give a big thank you to the LFA committee there in DC, especially to Jennifer Crystal and William Weber, the co-chairs of the event, and of course to Samantha LaCroix for making the connection. Thank you, girl. A few reminders before we get into today's show. On Wednesday, February 27th at 8 p.m., so it should be tomorrow by the time you're listening to this, I'm hosting a free live workshop all about how to land a job in study abroad. If you're listening to this episode before February 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern, you can register for free at InsideStudyAbroad.com training. Of course, I'll have everything linked in the show notes as well, but just go to InsideStudyAbroad.com training, type in your email, and you will be good to go. Also, as I mentioned last week and in some emails this week to the Inside Study Abroad community, I've opened enrollment for the Global Pro Institute for the very last time. If you missed the early bird discount, don't worry. I have some other special offers up my sleeve for for those of you who tune into the workshop on Wednesday. Even if you can't attend live, don't worry about it. Make sure you sign up so you'll get any email about those offers later this week. This is the final cohort of GPI, and we begin on Monday, March 4th. So get in while you can. 
if you've been sitting on your hands the last few years thinking, ah, I'll do it next time. I'll do it next time. There is no next time, you guys. This is it. This is the last round of GPI I will ever be offering. So get in while you can. The doors close Sunday, March 3rd at 9 p.m. Pacific time. You can learn more about GPI at globalproinstitute.com. Okay, let's get in today's episode, which is one of my favorite topics of all time. Last fall, I had the pleasure of sitting down with a panel of seasoned international educators to discuss innovation and entrepreneurship as it relates to international education administration. This is like all of my worlds combined into the best thing ever. This conversation was inspired by an event last summer hosted by ISA in Colorado called Think Den. Think and then Den, D-E-N. The goal of this event was to bring together IE administrators to share their best practices and innovations to deliver higher quality, more effective, and a broader range of global experiences for students and faculty. My guests today all played a key role at the ISA Think Den event. I've got Lauren Alexander, who worked closely with attendees and facilitators to flesh out the content for the day-long event. Mary Dando and her team at CU Boulder not only hosted the gathering, but they offered up their own innovations in IE. And Dr. Tony Ogden served as facilitator extraordinaire for the various presentations, panel discussions, and workshops. Here's a little bit about each of my guests before we get into it, because I didn't really do much of an intro for each of these people because I wanted to get right into the content during the interview. So here's the introduction for each of our panelists today. Since joining ISA in 2008, Lauren Alexander has served in several divisions, including custom programs, international internships, service learning, and most recently, university partnerships. In her current role, Lauren manages ISA's collaboration with higher education institutions to advance their global engagement initiatives. Mary Dando has directed education abroad at the University of Colorado Boulder since 2007 and has been in the field of international education for nearly three decades. See, I told you I had some powerhouses on here. At CU, Mary's team has focused on increasing access to education abroad opportunities to all students. She has been active in NASA, has presented at many conferences, and has served on numerous study abroad advisory boards. Dr. Anthony Ogden, or Tony Ogden, currently serves as Associate Vice President for Global Engagement at the University of Wyoming. Previously, he has held leadership positions at IES Abroad, Pennsylvania State University, University of Kentucky, and Michigan State University. He's been an active member of NASA, Forum, AIEA, and is, was a founding member of the Fund for Education Abroad. Tony has numerous publications to his credit, including the forthcoming stylist publication, Education Abroad and the Undergraduate Experience. Let's welcome them all to the show. In this episode, we talk about why the discussion of innovation and entrepreneurship in international education is so critical at this moment in time. What prevents IE professionals from being innovative or entrepreneurial in their work and the steps administrators can take to begin thinking like entrepreneurs and creating a culture of innovation. The guests outline the core areas where administrators can begin applying innovative thinking and strategies in their work. We also get into our thoughts on disruptive innovation in higher education, such as alternatives to university like coding boot camps, growing gap year programs, etc. We also look at what other industries or entrepreneurial ventures have inspired innovations at their institutions. And we discuss how we can balance the for-purpose mission of global education with the for-profit model of many programs abroad at universities and at partner organizations. We also look at some innovative approaches to lowering the cost of programs abroad while maintaining quality and not just with more scholarships and grants. All right. 
Let's go to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Insights Study Abroad podcast. I'm so happy you guys could join me today. Happy to be with you. So as you guys know, I've already done an introduction for you in the intro, so we'll skip that for now. I just want to start with Lauren. Tell me why the Think Den event was created. What sort of spurred this, this idea to get in, um, administrators in a room talking about innovation and entrepreneurship in international ed? Absolutely. So I think it, it was definitely a collaborative effort. I mean, it was something that my colleague Mark Galovic um, initially started speaking with some of our board members about and with Tony, and it just sort of grew from there. I think what was important to us is we realized that this was a really critical topic and that most of us as professionals don't like to talk about finances. We often speak about program affordability and scholarship access but we're not really focused on the nuts and bolts of running your office and having a sound financial strategy for your operations. So we saw the critical need for the topic. And we also just wanted to bring together some of the great minds in the field and provide a space for really true dialogue and brainstorming. And so the format was equally important to us that Every individual came to the table contributing to a session or leading a panel and then had the follow-up responsibility of sharing out the outcomes of their uh, session and those ideas in a formal report. So we really just saw the need and ISA felt that we had a great network of colleagues that we could bring together and we had Tony helping us out as a fantastic facilitator. And then we had our gracious host, Mary, at CU Boulder. So it really just came together very um, sort of organically. Great, great. So how, break it down for us. How many uh, institutions were um, represented at the event or how many people uh, were able to attend? So we had roughly 18 different institutions and we did our oh, best cool. to bring in a wide range of small private institutions, liberal arts institutions, but also large state universities. Mm-hmm. But our criteria for selecting our participants and recruiting their involvement was more based on their own professional experience and their leadership positions within their university. So we did try to bring together a diverse range of institutions, but one of the pieces that was very important early on was for all of us as professionals and colleagues to come together and not necessarily speak from a place of at my university or at my college, this is what's done, but really come at it from as practitioners, what are we seeing? And yes, certainly bringing our institutional context into play, but also just coming to the table as individuals and colleagues with different ideas. Mm-hmm. Great, and also great. We had we had to make sure that people were willing to give a session and write an article. So. Right, <laughs> right. There's some some um, actual skin in the game for people participating. Okay, great. Well, I, I want to uh, turn the question over to Tony. So, um, entrepreneurship and higher education administration can sometimes seem like oxymorons, at least in my experience working in the field. Um, what do you think prevents us as professionals in some context? from being innovative or being entrepreneurial in our work? And what do you think are the first steps administrators can take to actually begin thinking like entrepreneurs? Well, thanks for that question, Brooke. I, um, I think it probably sh- I should first say that entrepreneurship and innovation have been, in, have been part of education abroad since the very beginning. This is not a new concept necessarily. 
But what is new is really as has been the changing landscape of higher education here in the United States and how budget cuts and other types of changes have really uh, created uh, or I think instigated really a, a response around the country for folks to become more innovative and entrepreneurial. Now, in answer to your question, the, you know, and I can answer that primarily with regard to higher education, and that is in higher education, there are a number, certainly at state institutions like where I've been, there are always these uh, frameworks or parameters that sort of guide the way that we could engage. And oftentimes, at least in state institutions, being innovative and entrepreneurial sometimes comes um, it, it butts up against our day-to-day -day routines. And so I think what, what's, what's had to happen in the last five to 10 years is that we start looking differently at funding models, differently in partnerships and forms of engagement, uh, and, and really just look to all, all various forms of new capacity building so that we can enhance our operations, continue to grow them, but to do so with potentially less revenue centrally provided or um, other opportunities within the home institution campus. I think, in fact, it, the, probably the better answer to your question is we've not had a choice. Well played there, yes, <laughs> we agree. Sometimes entrepreneurship is sort of trying to get to a yes, even when all roads are closed to you um, yeah. that you think are getting you to the end result you're, you're seeking. So I, I really like that answer. Um, so moving forward then, uh, walk us through what you think are the core areas um, or the, the core areas that you suggest administrators and professionals begin applying innovative thinking and strategies in their work? If you're asking me, Brooke, I think one of the, 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 the real focus of ThinkedIn was not just broadly defined about inter, uh, entrepreneurship and innovation, but really looking at that with regard to operational management. Quite often, uh, education abroad practitioners around this country have been entrepreneurial insofar as supporting student uh, scholarships and other types of, of opportunities for students. And that's been very much a part of our profession for the longest time. However, uh, and, and, and linked to my previous answer, th this ThinkedIn was really looking at how we are able to seek the funds and, and such to support our various offices and our operations. So that was the core. Now, with regard to that, much of the uh, LinkedIn discussions were really focused on focusing on funding models, really trying to look differently at maybe a, a model that may have once worked, but maybe not as working as well today, looking at various forms of partnerships and collaboration, looking at new forms of external uh, funding possibilities and so forth. So I think that was really the key. And I think that came through very nicely in the uh, ThinkedIn report. Mm -hmm. Can I just have a question about that? Um, when you talk about external funding uh, sources, uh, do you have any examples of those that people have already tried to tap into that have been pretty successful or, or, or really different than anything we've seen previously? Well, I think that the more, the more commonly known funding sources obviously would be from grant uh, proposal mm -hmm. writing to uh, alumni and uh, donor sponsorships, corporate sponsorships, but even local activities such as creating a, a, a school record relationship or uh, offering passport services and various other 
uh, ideas. And so the, in the ThinkedIn report, we really talk in, in various parts of the report, really, these various ways to seek external support. Primarily, if you look at some of the national surveys that we've quoted in the report, many education abroad practitioners generally look internally for funding, either through senior leadership or other forms of, of, of funding internally. But now I think in what all indicated to us in, at the Think Team gathering was that they now are feeling pressure both intrinsically and extrinsically to be able to look for new funding sources. Now, I don't think that there is just this new idea that no one's ever tried, but I think what's particularly relevant to all of us in education abroad is that we need to be doing and pursuing multiple strategies to secure and to be able to sustain our operations. Brooke, if I could just jump in, I also wanted to give Mary the opportunity to talk specifically about this area as Mary, you chaired the session that we gave on funding models um, and worked with Tony on coming up with sort of a quadrant trying to define the funding models. So I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on the report, but I didn't know, Mary, if you had anything to add um, to that area since you really focused in on that for your session. Sure. I, I, I want to point out that the Think Dan report is very, very dense and valuable and has um, a lot of really good articles that came from that came from our conversations. And we'll be and, linking to that in the show notes of the episode for this podcast. So anybody listening right now, just head over to insightstudyabroad.com and you'll find this episode and it'll be linked right there. Oh, that's excellent. Great. That's excellent. So our particular group took a look at operational funding models. And what we, were, what we uh, were looking at were two major types of operational funding models, but then we also broke that down to be more nuanced. But the major operational models are institutional funding. So that would be funding from the general fund, sourced from the general fund, or completely being self-funded where the revenue is generated such as from the collection of student fees, et cetera. And uh, Lauren and Tony, if you want to talk about how that was broken down and was more nuanced in the, in the quadrant, I'll turn that back to you and then I'll talk specifically about the report. I can field that one uh, if, if you'd like, but we also talked about um, hybrid unit being some mix of the two, so having some institutional support, but also some self-sustaining um, funding that they're bringing in. And then the last one we talk, talk about was really the emerging unit. So acknowledging that there are a lot of institutions that may just be starting up education abroad operations and their challenge in really identifying a funding model that works well within their institutional context. So right. I think we really worked to develop and define some broad categories, but we also acknowledge that this is sort of the beginning of that effort. And we expect and hope that others in the field are going to contribute to this conversation and help us to, to further define the different models that, that may be used at, on any given campus. And if I can just echo a little bit of that too, Lauren, the, it wasn't the intention of the discussion at ThinkDen or even in the article just and to alone define the different categories, but to really provide uh, an analysis of some of the challenges and the potential opportunities associated with each, because even a longstanding education abroad office or to just a, a new emerging office will really have to make some tough decisions because there really isn't the most desirable model. Uh, 
it really has, uh, it really must interact with the institutional culture. And so I think in the work that Mary and her team did, they really sort of outlined the, the real, the pros and the cons for, for all offices today, because in fact, at least in my assessment, there's not an office of education abroad in this country right now that's not paying attention to their funding models. Right. Yeah. Well, and they have to be right. And I, I think that's really interesting to th this idea of figuring out what the models are and then overlaying on top of that a framework that uh, takes into account the culture and what would be acceptable in, in certain different types of institutional settings. Um, some I know I've worked at small liberal arts colleges. The idea of a corporate sort of um, <laughs> partnership might have not gone over very well by uh, certain people in the administration. But uh, a university I worked at, a state public division one, would have been on board immediately. So well, I think you it's know, really. Brooke, I, I would bet if you went back to those institutions where you were formerly at, that that conversation may have changed a bit. Yeah. And because I think that folks are now really having to truly think entrepreneurially and yeah. innovatively to be able to to assess current situations to so as to not lose momentum mm -hmm. uh, going forward, but also maybe to further enhance it because education abroad is not what it was, what was once uh, a, a limited opportunity for particular students, but now it's, it's moved from the periphery of undergraduate education to the core as a high impact educational practice. And as that continues to solidify there in the core of undergraduate education, it, uh, we're going to see, I would anticipate further growth but universities just can't continue to staff up to that growth. They have to be effect, uh, efficient and look at funding models that, that create a perpetuity in, in, in their operations. Shifting gears a little bit um, to some of the other sort of core pieces I pulled out from um, the, the articles and the report that you guys pulled together, beyond funding models and budgeting um, and even culture, uh, two things that, that – uh, struck me was uh, the conversation around partnerships as a new, or not necessarily new, but uh, an innovative approach to to broadening program models, for instance, or uh, different types of program opportunities, and also faculty engagement. Um, would anybody like to talk a little bit about um, one of those areas in terms of uh, specific things that people have been doing that people listening to the podcast right now be able, might be able to take away as inspiration for something they could do back on their campus? Uh, this is Mary. I can step in and answer that. Um, I'd like to refer back to the report, which hopefully listeners will be able to also reference after this talk. Um, Arizona State has presented a model in their chapter where they're talking about their five-year strategic plan and the different ways that they're approaching this issue of opening up access to students to be able to go abroad. Mm -hmm. And they, what they're doing is being done campuses so it can be broadened to apply to your own campuses. One thing is to uh, offer affordable programs. So uh, make sure that your portfolio includes a range of, of quite affordable programs. So they have worked on partnerships with, with uh, different provider organizations to offer an affordable, affordable range of options. The second thing is to expand your models for education abroad. And that means going beyond the traditional classroom language-based traditional study abroad programs to include, of course, faculty-led, which is quite common in our field, but also to look at a wide expansion of international internships and a model that Arizona State refers to as the global intensive experience 
other universities would refer to that as an embedded study abroad program where students can go abroad as part of a course that's offered on their home campus. And what we are seeing on, on other campuses as well is that that is in many ways either the only opportunity that students may have to go abroad or second, it could be a stepping stone for them to go abroad for a longer period of time. So that's a very important model. Uh, research is also becoming a new, a new mode for students to go abroad. So uh, the, the other very important thing is to develop very strong campus alliances because you cannot do this alone from the education abroad office, whether you're centralized or, or decentralized. It's going to be a campus-wide effort. And education abroad offices have a responsibility to share best practices with the rest of the campus and also to encourage the various schools and college and academic units to look at what would work best for them as far as the curriculum and adding an international component to the education of their students. So for instance, if the School of Business on your campus is quite entrepreneurial and is looking at, uh, then they can be a model for other schools and colleges, say engineering or journalism, if you have that on your campus. So one, one way to do this is for units actually, in a sense, to compete with each other. And we see that happening. It's a friendly competition, but uh, many times that is initiated by the School of Business or other entrepreneurial units like that. Yeah, I, I love that idea of um, and tapping into people's uh, little bit of competitive nature <laughs> sometimes. I think that's an interesting, interesting angle for sure. Um, I wanted to chat a little bit about one thing I noticed when I was reviewing the report, specifically related to faculty engagement as a strategy for growing capacity, growing sort of a longer term support for the initiatives of the Global Education Office by, by getting faculty on your side. And so um, I know that there are a lot of uh, strategies presented there, for instance, um, getting faculty to go on, um, you know, educational seminars uh, abroad as a, as a group, you sort of get them familiar with what the work you do in international ed. Uh, some of those topics, some of those tactics require some upfront funding. You got to pay for the faculty to participate in those activities. Um, and, you know, in the business world, we'd say, yeah, you got to spend money to make money, right? So how, how, what are some strategies or tactics you would recommend to an institution to get to either justify spending that upfront cost that may have a positive ROI in the long term, but may not have one right immediately um, upfront right after the, the event took place, um, or convincing administration to help fund those or help finding the resources to, to invest in those longer term strategies that, that will have a, a, a positive impact down the road. Tony can definitely jump in on this. I mean, he's written some specific articles on faculty engagement, but mm -hmm. I can just share as a colleague, one thing that I've seen be very successful on campuses is when faculty actually apply for a grant or for funding. And that's really one excellent way to get a lot of mileage over out of your funds because you're essentially making sure that you're providing that support to your faculty that one, are motivated to apply for the funding, but two, you can put some, um, some, some asks and some requests and framework around that funding in terms of managing your expectations of, yes, our office is gonna support you 
in going abroad and having this experience and learning how you might internationalize your curriculum. Mm. But in return, we're going to expect for you to put forward a joint research proposal with a faculty member abroad or present to your department or probably the most common is offer up a faculty-led programming proposal. So I think that's a really good way. And also sometimes getting the colleges involved. So some colleges may have more financial access to funds like that and right. working with them to structure how they might award that grant. So mm -hmm. I think that's one way to really make sure that you're getting the most ROI mm -hmm. out of that funding that you're putting forward. I will just add to that, if I may, Lauren. The, I think your question, Brooke, speaks to a little bit of a, a of a crossroads where we're at now in education abroad. For you know, over twenty years ago, or for a long time, in fact, we've always been after the faculty, almost asking them to please just be engaged and support education abroad. Well, fast forward to today, they are. And now, if you look at the most recent Open Doors report, 65% of all U.S. students earning credit abroad are doing so in programs less than eight weeks. Now, I would guess that much of that, or many of those students, are participating on these short-term faculty-directed cohort programs. Now, that's quite interesting because that, that is a big shift now in education abroad enrollment. And so now faculty members are responding. You know, the, the, tru the truth of this is that if any office wants to be successful, that the only way to do so is to work with and through the faculty because the faculty own and control the curriculum. And as Education Abroad is an academic enterprise, we really do need to have that close and um, effective uh, partnership with the faculty. Now, what's quite interesting is as faculty members do become more engaged, that that level of engagement is they're asking, in fact, for more support from within their own departments in the university, broadly defined, specifically in their promotion and tenure process, their uh, various levels of, uh, of support and, and, and acknowledgement of what they're doing. So I think that's going to be interesting. In a way, the tail is going to wag the dog in that, in that regard. But education abroad offices now have a, 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 a real opportunity it used to be that faculty members individ as individuals would come to our offices and propose programs. Now the shift is toward departments own and the departments create programs, not individual faculty members. And so I think that's going to be very interesting to see how departments and education abroad offices and others will work together to create a synergy among their, fa their funding and then as well as to look externally. So I think that's going to be really interesting to see what happens as we, I'm not sure if any of that made any sense. It all made sense to me that everybody's going to follow along just great. <laughs> um, so I, I want to shift gears a little bit, and this is definitely something I, I it was not, at least from my understanding, was not covered in the report from my reading of it at all. But I just wanted to get, um, since I have the captive audience of, of, of several people who are very, very well respected in the field. You have a lot of ideas of what's going on in higher education in general and in international education specifically. I'm curious what you what your thoughts are on disruptive innovation happening in higher ed and in international ed. Specifically, um, sort of ideas or or 
uh, movements that are kind of circumventing what we would see as traditional uh, avenues um, for higher ed and international ed. So specifically speaking, um, coding boot camps, for instance. So people going to these 12 week, one year long, there's various models of these and, and getting a, a very intensive coding uh, quote degree uh, from these camps to then in, then get great high paying jobs at Google and Facebook and all the places. And then that's a more higher ed type of thing. But, and then specifically um, more organizations creating different types of uh, gap year, I'm using quotes, <clears throat> air quotes here, um, programming that uh, would either, you know, uh, postpone students' enrollment in higher ed in general or, or replace some of it in, in some capacity. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on some of those innovations. In, in our space. Well, I have a few thoughts on that, if I may. I, I, I'm not as familiar with this term disruptive innovation, but I can definitely see trends with regard to international education that's, that are really beginning to emerge that to a certain extent might be disruptive. And one is the use of distance learning. Mm. And OPM are these online program managers that are uh, integrating online delivery of education with in context education. I can see some really interesting, innovative um, programming modalities emerging from that. Now, for several years now, we've been seeing certificate programs arising, but now I think what we're seeing as well are badging programs where that institutions are creating these sort of um, suite of activities that students, if they participate in, in certain ways, that they can get these badges that, that, that are then posted on their LinkedIn accounts, for example. I think this right. is really quite interesting yeah. to see students who have, and if you open up on, on occasion LinkedIn profiles and you see these badges that are already emerging that says, I'm a global <clears throat> citizen or I'm globally aware and, and so forth. I think that's kind of interesting to mm -hmm. truly look at undergraduate education in particular, not just as not just as the uh, the methodology of education or but look at other forms of undergrad undergraduate international engagement to be able to create these badges. And I think it really is forcing students and all of us to look differently at, at how to develop the, the, this, this set of knowledge and skills and attitudes for our graduates. Right. So it sounds like it's almost a gamification of the, of the experience yes. in a way. Yeah. That is what it's called I, in literature. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I've never seen one of these badges and now I'm thinking, how do, how do I get some of these badges? Cause yeah. we're going to start to look really old school if we don't have all, what all these young, young people have today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, interesting. Mary, did you have any thoughts on this idea of disruptive innovation? Well, I, again, I'm not sure if it's disruptive. It's simply, uh, uh, it's simply innovation and, and the waves of the future. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we're seeing are students seeking a multiplicity of experiences. And they come into our office, into our offices, and they're not sure what they want to do. And one of the things that seems to be exciting students these days are multiple options. So even in a current semester, they may want to go to three different locations. So that's a disruption to the field of education abroad. Yeah. to be able to offer those locations. And I mentioned before that we're also seeing students wanting repeat experiences. So they may go abroad for a few weeks as a first-year student, first-year experience in the summer, or perhaps an embedded study abroad experience in a course that they're taking, but then they want to go abroad for a longer period of time. We're also seeing, again, as Tony referred to, the, um, the badging, 
there is a there is a new a new wave of a, a secondary transcript that students are receiving, and one of the things that they can they can document on that transcript is there are their international experiences. So I think we want to pay attention to that as well. We only have a, a few minutes left here. I wanted to sort of close out this this conversation. While we we have talked a lot, and the report talks a lot about um, areas of innovation, entrepreneurship, um, strategies outside of scholarships and and grants and 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 program costs, for instance, I do, I do feel like that's still the critical issue for a lot of students uh, when it comes to accessing these, these experiences, especially with the rising costs of higher ed in general and, and therefore the rising student loan debt. I think right now I, I looked it up last week and the average now graduation debt is about $37,000. Um, so I'm, I want to bring the conversation back here in terms of what innovative approaches do you think, um, well, one, I, are, are people using to lower the cost of, of international programs um, or, or ideas that you guys have that you think people should, should explore moving forward to help actually lower the price tag of these experiences? And I think beyond scholarships and grants, because we tend to absorb the cost of scholarships and grants anyway that get sort of funneled back into the overhead anyway. So uh, aside from scholarships and grants, what do you, what do you, how, do, how do we lower the cost? Um, for students. Brooke, let me weigh in on a, on a pre-answer to that question, and the others I'm sure will have specifics. I think this question that you're referring to about cost is a critical one, and it's, and it's a reality mm -hmm. for many students. However, I think it's just as a reality to make sure that when we're talking about cost that we don't leave out the, co the, the topic of value. Because we all know that some of the most expensive programs or some of the most inexpensive programs will not re uh, recruit enough students in order to be viable. And, and sometimes in those situations, it really gets back to the value. And that is, what is the value proposition of education abroad? If students are still thinking about education abroad in terms of where they want to go and what they want to see in the world, I think that the value is going to be less than what it then understanding education abroad as a means to develop new knowledge or to uh, understand the international nuances of their discipline so that they can leverage that for further graduate student or uh, graduate school or career success. I think it's very, very important that we emphasize value uh, in addition to understanding the realities of cost. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think, um, I, and as you guys obviously know, the the it is a very loaded and complicated topic of how program how the how the bottom line number is as is determined on any given campus, any given program, any given destination. I I have been on the the side of that of you know messing with spreadsheets, <laughs> figuring out what those numbers are going to be uh, for sure. And been I've worked with providers to figure out program costs. Um, there's a lot that goes into it for sure, um, and I, I think. I think for me, I one of my sort of passion topics is this idea of affordability, but matched with value, but af affordability. Um, I'm a Pell Grant, first generation, rural Kansas kid who got lucky to go to college, let alone study abroad. So those kids are like important to me <laughs> in my world. And I'm always thinking of, of them when I think about who is actually getting to access these types of experiences. So I think cost is always on my mind for sure. Mary, do you have any thoughts on um, how we lower cost for students while maintaining value, of course? Well, I, the, it's, it's a little bit problematic to put the emphasis on lowering the cost 
because I think the institutions across the U.S. have done a really good job of offering affordable options. Faculty-led programs are, are going to be much more affordable than semester programs, for instance. So uh, it, it's important then to maintain the, the idea that Tony brought up of the value proposition. But secondly, I think another thing that we can do and be, be smarter about is leveraging the current scholarship funding sources that we do have working closely with partners and in redirecting our scholarship money towards students who have financial need as opposed to giving it to students who have merit. So looking at, at, at that and redirecting scholarships, um, taking the money that we already have and setting up funds that for planning scholarships for first-generation students, for instance, or underrepresented students, letting them know as soon as they hit the campus that they could have access to a certain amount of scholarship money, say four or $5,000 to go abroad for a semester or maybe 3,000 for a summer program. Mm -hmm. So students can plan during their four years at the institution where they would like to study abroad. So I think that's innovative and I think that's important. Mm -hmm. And another thing to look at, going back to your value proposition um, that you mentioned, Tony, <clears throat> are, is the importance of informing students about how this is relevant to their education abroad is relevant to their life after college. Mm -hmm. And there's a movement to have career integration workshops across the United States. I think it's important for education abroad practitioners to participate in that, to be able to communicate effectively to students what is the value proposition and why is this going to be important for your career after you graduate. Well, this is a great segue to my final question. And this is a question I don't like to prep people for, but it's light and easy. Don't worry. It's not, it's not a zinger, I promise. Uh, but it, just to, to round things out. So one of the things that I am really lucky in my role, I have another business in a totally different industry. I ended up going to a lot of conferences outside of international education. And when I, you know, chat with people and they say, what have you done, you know, in your life? And I was like, well, it's been all this time helping kids study abroad. And they just think it's the most amazing thing. And the number one thing I always hear from people is, wow, that's my one regret in college that I didn't study abroad. And I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard that statement said to you anecdotally as well. So if you were to speak to somebody right now, a college student back in, a, in the trenches and advising students every day, and they asked you, oh, if you were me, where would you study abroad? at this time, everything you know about the world of international education, about the world in general, where would each of you choose to study abroad for a semester if you had to do it all over again? Well, I think this is an interesting question, uh, Brooke. And well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you two quick answers. One is I studied abroad this year for the very first time. <laughs> uh, and I had, the, I had the time and the opportunity to study abroad in Argentina and to study Spanish for a short while. and. I always regretted not having the opportunity to, to not study abroad. And so I'm glad that here in my 50s, I was able to make that possible. Now, the other thing, though, is that if a student ever were to ask me, where should I study? I would we would have a, a discussion about the question. It's not about where you go. It's about what you study or what you hope to achieve. And oftentimes, too many students come to offices such as ours 
and come with that where, where do I want to go type of question and it's misplaced. They really do need to think about what, what kind of career do they need and what sort of new knowledge and skills and opportunities must they pursue now as an undergraduate to be able to leverage later for that career. So sometimes the best place to study their discipline may, may not be abroad. It may be at another U.S. institution for a short time, but it could very well be abroad. And my hope is that they'll make informed decisions about what they want to learn and what they need to achieve so as to be successful later in their life. And so not about where, it's about what. I completely agree with everything you said, but I'm going to press you even more. <laughs> where in the world would Tony Ogden want to go in the world? Just because you just think it's interesting and fascinating and make the assumption that it's also a great academic career choice for the student as well. That's a given. Well, if I had to answer, I would say Japan. I love Japan. Yeah. Any, I, any particular I, reason? Well, I, I, I study Japanese and, and so forth, and I have a lot of personal connections there, and I've had, I have spent some time there, but I would love to go back to Japan right at this point in my career and really study Japanese once again in a formal sip situation. Mm -hmm. Just get back to, the, to that, that, that world of living and, and learning and being just excited about each and every day, and I think that's what education abroad often does for students and certainly did for me earlier this year in Argentina. Great. Mary, your turn. We're making the assumption that it's a perfect fit for the student academically, career objectives, all those things, where, where would you, you want to go in the world if you were a student again? Well, Brooke, I, in both personally and in professionally, I've had the opportunity to visit many, many places around the world and many education abroad programs. So every time I go to a new location, for instance, I spent two and a half weeks in Morocco and Spain this year, and Morocco is a new location for me. Every time I go, I say, this is where I would like to study. I want to come back here for a year. Yeah. So I am not going to tell you one place. When I was in Morocco, I said, oh, I would love to come and live here. Mm -hmm. I would love to come and study here because it's, it's a unique experience being in the Medinas and Fez and sitting in the classroom and studying both colloquial and Fusa Arabic. So that in Spain, I had the same thought. I would love to be in Sevilla. I would love to, to be in Madrid for a semester or Granada. So uh, I think it's wherever you are at the moment. And going back to what Tony said, it's also critically important for students to choose the place that works best for their curriculum. So I think it's important for institutions to have a really robust course approval database that students can go into and say, wow, this is where I can knock out these economics requirements, or this is going to be the best place for me to go and study international affairs. So it's really it's, it's, it's a complicated question. Right. Yeah, of course it is. It's supposed to be a fun, light question, everybody, not a complicated <laughs> question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, no, but it did, actually, what, what you said reminded me, Mary, I spent the last year, I, I can run my business from my laptop as long as I have internet. So I spent the last year as a digital nomad living in a new country every month on three different continents. And every time I was sort of wrapping up my life in each country, I would be on the phone with a friend or my mom or something. And I'm just like, I'm never leaving. I love this place so much. And it would happen repeat on repeat every month. So I can totally relate to that moment of the last place you visited is pretty much your favorite place. So, um, and Lauren, what about you? If you were to do it all over again, you can go the high road like, 
like Tony and Mary here and, and give me some great insights and professional uh, points of view, or you could just give me an answer. <laughs> uh, I'll make it easy on you. I, 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 the professionalism is yeah. out of, out of, we've met our professionalism quota. For uh, I would actually say probably somewhere in Asia, just because mm. it's an area of, um, maybe Korea, maybe China. It's just an area that I do not know a lot about and mm. an area that I think um, is of critical importance in global relations and business and all of these different components. And so I think for me, um, that's that's probably, that's where I would go. Great. I love it. Straightforward to the point. Perfect. Everyone, thank you so much for uh, jumping on this podcast and giving your insights and sharing this this event and what you guys discussed in this report as well. As well, as I said before, I will be linking to that in the show notes as well as to all the bios and institutions that each person represents here, and you can learn more about them and their work and and what they're what they're sharing with their research and their practitioner based roles in the field. So, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you very much, Brooke. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you so much to Lauren, Mary, and Tony for coming on the show and to ISA for sponsoring this episode. If you want to learn more about ISA, head over to studiesabroad.com for more information. And of course, everything we talk about in the interview and various things I've mentioned throughout the show, they're all going to be linked up in the show notes over at insidestudyabroad.com slash podcast. You'll be able to find the latest episodes and all the links and details there. Now, a few reminders before we sign off today. Don't forget, I'm hosting a workshop this Wednesday, so it should be tomorrow at the time of listening to this, on how to land a job in study abroad. You can register at insidestudyabroad.com slash training, and it's completely free. The final cohort of the Global Pro Institute begins next Monday, March 4th. You can learn more about the program at globalproinstitute.com. As for where I'm headed next later this week, assuming I get back to Kansas City, later this week I'm headed to Boston for a few days, and then I'll be back in KC for a couple of weeks before I head out on my next adventure, which stay tuned to learn more about that. And be sure to tune in to the show next week for a very important announcement, and I'll reveal what I've got cooking up over here in the land of Brooke Roberts and Inside Study Abroad. So stay tuned for next week's episode. Until next time, you guys, remember that every day you postpone a dream, you weaken it a little. So get out there and make some magic happen. Bye for now.